My name is Bill Mallow. I'm one of the elders at the church here. The scriptural passage we are considering this morning is found in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. Uh, if, you have, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please avail yourself uh, to the one in the rack in front of you. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, is on page 891. Let's stand together. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough to for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, When did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. 
Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Please take your seats and take a moment to think about this passage of Scripture and to prepare your heart and mind for this morning's sermon. I love bread. Uh, A bad restaurant can become a good restaurant if they just have good bread. Because you fill up on the bread in the beginning and then you just don't care about how good the food is. I, I, I have a weird, I just have a weird connection with bread because when I go into like a bakery, what I like is I like to see all the bread in different shapes stacked in baskets and and put everywhere. I, I, I love when it's just full of bread. And some of them are braided and some of them have designs on the top of them and some of them are round. And they have all kinds of different face, uh, sort of shapes. Some of them have that dusty flour or that cornmeal on the bottom. And I don't do this, but I want to put my hands on every loaf. <laughs> I, I don't know what that feels. Just, I just want to touch it. I just want to go, oh, that's so awesome. Well, in 1995, I just thought, I've I got to learn how to bake bread. So I, I went on a sabbatical. I had some extra time. So I started to learn how to bake bread. Not fake bread machine bread. Sorry for you bread machine fans. But like real bread. you got to knead it. you got to have the yeast that rises, the whole thing. So I bought pans. I bought baskets. I brought a little pastry brush because if you just 
do the egg whites and you brush it on the bread and it's nice and shiny afterwards and people are like so impressed and you're like, it's just a little pastry brush and egg whites, but it looks awesome. And I got all this stuff and I baked all kinds of bread. I got all kinds of books and our family favorite was potato bread. Remember that? So potato bread was basically white bread. It's not, it's not good if you're like on a high protein diet to love bread. Because this is, you know, potato and wheat. I mean, that's just maximum carbs. And so the thing is with the potato bread, I learned right away I had to bake two loaves. I could never just bake one because one was going to get consumed immediately as it came out of the oven. So Nancy and Zachary and Morgan were all slicing off big hunks, big slice of butter across the top of it. Oh. I shouldn't say this right now because all you're now, you're starving, aren't you? You're like, oh, I've got to have some. But bread, is it's just so satisfying. You, you feel like you could make a meal just off good bread. There, there's a Pinterest that says, I can live off this bread. That's the title of it. And it just has cool pictures of bread. I just want to touch them all. And you can just hear Jesus, can't you say? That's why I made bread. I designed bread before anything else was created. I had in mind that people would like bread so that one day I could say, you know that satisfaction you get from bread? It's, it's just a tiny little window into the satisfaction you can get from me. And that's really what this whole chapter, chapter 6, is about. People are hungry. And he understands they can really be satisfied with bread. And so he satisfies them with the bread, and they go, that was awesome. I mean, it was free. This guy had this lunch, and he says, well, I can just multiply it out. And they all sat down, and they all ate 5,000 or 15,000, whatever the number was. And he's trying to say to these people, do you see, Do I want you to make a connection to your satisfaction physically to a spiritual satisfaction you can only get with me. I'm trying to make that connection. And it looks like the people are making the connection, but something goes wrong in their connection between bread and Jesus. And what I I want us to do here this morning is just to see how defective their, their connection was. Because I don't want your connection to be defective. I don't want my connection to be defective. And then to ask the question, well, well, what is it that Jesus is actually looking for? If they did it defectively, how can we do it correctly? Now, the first thing that we need to notice is just first the, the multiple connections. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Chapter 6, 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Chapter 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I mean, you can't possibly miss the connection that Jesus is trying to make. Uh, and the other thing that we want to see here in this chapter and really all through the New Testament is how many times Jesus connects himself to the Old Testament figure of Moses. It happens to be many times in this particular chapter, but it, it actually begins back in John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus looks at his uh, disciples and says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's a story out of the, the, the exodus, out of the wilderness. The people had been unfaithful. Uh, poisonous snakes came into the camp and were biting the people and they were dying. 
And Moses went to intercede for the people. And God said, uh, make an image of a snake, put it on a pole and go throughout the camp. And as people look at that image, they'll be saved from the poisonous bite. Now, you can make the connection, can you not? There, he's going to be on a pole. He's going to rescue people from a poisonous bite of sin. And if you look at him, if you trust in him, then he's going to save you. So he's making these connections between what Moses did and who he is. Another one, John or Luke chapter 9, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. So they're up on this mountain and these three people to come together. Two or three disciples are around them. And this is what they spoke of. Luke says this. They spoke about Jesus's departure. And we say it in English departure, but in the Greek, it's the word exodus. So Moses is talking to Jesus about the exodus. What a great picture. I mean, wouldn't you love to have heard that conversation? The, the person who really led this mass exodus is now saying, Jesus, you're going to lead this much greater exodus. Everyone who trusts in you is going to be able to cross the sea and get into the, the promised land. Then we just notice here in, in John chapter 6, verse 2, the people witnessed many miraculous signs, so they followed after Jesus. Moses did many miraculous signs, and people followed after Moses. Verse 3, Jesus goes up on a mountain. Moses goes up on a mountain. Verse 11, in the wilderness, Jesus miraculously provides bread for thousands of people. In the wilderness, Moses miraculously, through God, provides bread to thousands of people. And finally, let's look at verse 14. When they finally saw the sign, it says this, when the people saw the sign, this is, I've seen the sign, I've seen this multiplication of the bread, I've seen that Jesus has done it, then this is what they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. So Moses himself, himself had said, hey, there's going to be a prophet like me that comes into the world. You're supposed to listen to him. Well, Jesus is trying to say, all those Moses arrows, they all terminate on me. I'm the real and better Moses. I'm the true Moses that's going to rescue people from their sin. You, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. And I love their enthusiasm in verse 15. Jesus says, I know they want to make me king. And so when you just stop there, you think, okay, I think these guys are getting it. They, they see the sign, they connect it to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you need to be king. And, and if you just sort of stop there, you'd think, that's pretty good. I mean, that's what we want. We want people to see a sign and then say, oh, it's really pointing to Jesus, and what I really need is Jesus to be king. That sounds good, but you start to smell something's wrong here. And, and you get a perception of it because once Jesus knows that they want to make him king, what does he do? He withdraws. So they have all this enthusiasm for Jesus, but you can tell there's something rotten about the enthusiasm because Jesus withdraws from them. And so my question is, is what was that defective connection that they were trying to make? And let's make sure we don't make that same defective connection and then ask the question, well, so what, what am I supposed to be looking for instead? First, the, notice that the people saw the signs. 
And, and they saw the signs, and I'll explain this in a minute. They saw the signs, and instead of connecting the sign to Jesus, they really connected the sign to themselves. They saw the sign, and they did see Jesus, but Jesus wasn't the end. They were the end. And they were just going to use Jesus for their own purposes. Notice in verse 2, a large crowd was following after Jesus. Why? Well, they saw signs. They saw signs of Jesus healing sick people. Well, if somebody comes into Wilmington and starts healing sick people, lots of people are going to start gathering around. It's not surprising. They're just interested. They're just curious about who Jesus is. And they follow him around this lake, the Sea of Galilee, that's 12 miles uh, long and about 7 miles wide. And they come to this particular sort of deserted place, and Jesus is teaching them things, and they don't have any food. And so he does this multiplication miracle, and 5,000 or more eat. And notice what it says. As much as they weren't want, verse 11, and they had eaten their fill. So here are these people. They've seen Jesus heal people, and they've seen Jesus feed people. And what are they concluding? We'd love to this person to be king. Because if I ever get sick, he's going to heal me. And if I ever get hungry, he's going to feed me. Let's make this dude king. He'd be a great king. But why do they want that? They don't want it for Jesus. They want it for themselves. Do you see what they're doing? They're not interested in worshiping Jesus. They're interested in themselves. They're really interested in using Jesus for their own ends. And that was the defective part of their following after Jesus. You can be enthusiastically following after Jesus but not following after the real Jesus. You could just be following after Jesus, so I get heaven. I mean, I don't want to go to hell. So I'll just do the Jesus thing, so I get heaven. You see what you're doing? You're really following after Jesus just for yourself. Or I'm following after Jesus because he's going to give me stuff right here, right now. So their enthusiasm was was defective, and Jesus understood it, and when he understood it, he withdrew. They, they see the signs, but they make themselves the, the destination. They, they don't want to worship Jesus, they want to use Jesus. It's like they want to force Jesus to be the best supporting actor in their own drama. See, my life is about me, and I'm the center part of my drama. And boy, I really need Jesus on the stage. Because he makes my life a whole lot better. And I want to make sure he's the best supporting actor in my drama. And when Jesus finds out that people want him to enter the stage and be the best supporting actor in their drama, Jesus walks away. He uses you to be a supporting actor or actress in his drama. You don't use him to be a supporting actor in your drama. And you, you see, outwardly, they had enthusiasm. Outwardly, it looked like they were doing the right thing. We want to make this guy king. But inwardly, really, they were just using Jesus for themselves. John Piper says this, Jesus didn't come into the world to lend his power to already existing appetites. You hear that? Jesus didn't come in and say, well, look, you got a bunch of appetites already, and I just want to fill up those appetites. 
That's the fundamental mistake with the prosperity gospel. People leave untransformed in the way they, in what they crave and simply add the power of Jesus as a way of satisfying their cravings. See, I have cravings and they seem to just be natural cravings and I need somebody to come and fill those. And Jesus is saying he's going to fill all those things up. I don't have to change my cravings. Jesus has to meet me. That's not the gospel. Instead, it's a kind of defective enthusiasm Jesus walks away from. So many of us, maybe most of us here this morning would say, we're we're trying to be enthusiastic followers of Jesus. But is your enthusiasm defective? Is your enthusiasm really terminate on you? The reason you're doing the whole Jesus thing is if you keep pulling on the string, you're at the end of it. I'm hoping to get this thing out of it. I'm hoping that he fixes my life. I'm hoping to get heaven. It's really just using Jesus and not worshiping Jesus. So we're in this season of Lent, this season of self-evaluation. And we want to ask ourselves, uh, are we the central actor in our own drama? And we've invited Jesus onto our stage or... He's the central actor. It really doesn't matter what you think. He's the central actor. So what is Jesus looking for? This is, this is the defective enthusiasm that Jesus walks away for, from. So my question is then, well, so what is, it, what is he looking for? And there's a dialogue that basically answers this question. Look with me in verse 27. Do not labor for food that perishes. That's what they were doing. That they had, uh, they had come after Jesus looking for bread. They, they saw in, in, the, in between time Jesus had actually walked on the water and got to the other side. And they wake up and say, Jesus isn't here. He didn't get in the boat. So they got to scramble around, get in some boats and go to the other side. And he says he can see that they're chasing after him because they're hungry again. They're not really wanting Jesus. He says, look, I, can, I know why you're here. You just got hungry. You know, 12 hours went by and you're like, I need some more bread. So they come trying to chase after Jesus. And he says, don't labor for food that perishes. Instead, labor for food that will endure to eternal life, which is obviously him. Verse 28, someone says, okay, well, what must we do? Now, notice this. You got to notice this carefully. What must we do to be doing the works? Plural. What, what, okay, we want this bread, and there must be works that we have to do. This is a typical religious kind of question. I'm interested in eternal life, and there's got to be some labor I've got to do. There's got to be some works I've got to do. Give me some kind of list. Give me something to follow. Jesus answers then back that question, verse 29. This is the work. Now, notice that. That's plural. He's already correcting It's not a bunch of things. It's not Ten Commandments. It's not a big list. It's one thing. There's one thing you've got to do, one work of God. And what is that one thing? It's to believe or to have faith. The the one thing you must do is you must have faith in Jesus. You must know that he's the true bread. Every other thing you chase after to satisfy that empty place in your soul, that's not it. 
We had a meeting with elders here all day yesterday, and it started off with Bill, the, the reader of the, the text this morning, gave a little devotion, and really the devotion was Jesus is everything. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus has to be everything. You've got to put all of your faith on Jesus. You can't rest any of it on something else or someone else. Do you? There's just one thing you've got to do, one work, and that is it's really not a work. It's trusting in someone who's going to do the work. It's putting your faith in him. So just for clarity's sake, you might say this. Okay, I just want to make sure this right. I don't want to have defective enthusiasm. I want to check myself. I want to ask myself, am I really following Jesus so he just makes my life better? Which he does make your life better. But my question is, is that why you're following? Are you following him to worship him? Okay, I don't want to do that. I really want to trust Jesus. I want to believe. I want to have faith. So is what you're saying, Paul, that when I stand before God, instead of turning in my works... God, here's my tally sheet. I know I did that, but I mean, look how many good things I did over here to sort of make up for that. I'm not going to do that. That's religion. Instead of turning in this tally sheet or my report, I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to turn in my faith. Is that right? I'm not going to turn in my works. I'm going to turn in my faith. And I'd probably say, I don't. I don't think that's exactly right. It's not your faith that gives you eternal life. Jesus gives you eternal life. And what Jesus wants you and I to understand, it's not the measure of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. Does that make sense? This is really important that you understand this. Because sometimes you, you sort of trade in the works stuff for, I've got real faith now. And I know I messed up last week, but, but I'm going to go to church and I'm going to come down up front and I'm going to get somebody to pray for me. And by golly, this week I'm really going to have faith. And it really is like a work. It just feels like a work. And I'm hoping that this faith, like God's got his little measuring cup up in heaven, and I'm going to not have enough to pour in. And you see what I'm saying? My faith is getting me in heaven, and God wants to say, Jesus gets you into heaven. All you have to do is completely trust in him. And so it's maybe like this chair. You can have a little bit of faith that this chair is going to hold me up, or you can have a lot of faith that this chair is going to hold me up. But when I sit down, your faith or my faith doesn't hold me up. What holds me up? The chair. It's doing 100% of the work. And I might say, oh my gosh, this chair might not make it. Or I'm totally relaxed. And yeah, this chair is awesome. It doesn't matter. Because whether I'm nervous about it or confident about it, that's not getting me into heaven. Jesus is giving, getting me into heaven. And the reason this is so important is because I see so many people who spend so much of their time just trying to earnestly sort of work up something that they think is good enough. And that's really a works-oriented thing. I'm not saying you couldn't be saved and do that, but it's just painful. 
I'm trying to save you from that pain. I'm trying to say, just sit back and say, I have totally screwed my life up. And there isn't any measure of goodness that I'm going to have to give. The only thing I can contribute to my faith is sin. So I'm trusting Jesus is going to get me all the way there. My mother, she was 5'1", 105. We didn't fly a lot, but when we flew together, she'd get nervous at takeoff. I don't know if any of you are that way. And I could just tell. She, you know, you're just nervous. You're just squirming. I'm just looking at her because I know what's going to happen on takeoff. Get, get, you know, throttle down, plane going forward. And she's sitting there, and she, as soon as the plane's starting to lift off, she lifts her feet up off the floor. <laughs> and I'm a teenager, like, oh, good grief. And I remember the first time I said, like, what are you doing? You know how, like, you're a teenager, like, your parents are embarrassing? You're like, what are you doing? Paul, it's my little contribution to take off. (laughs) You and I make no contribution to take off. And I want you to say amen to that. You don't have to say, oh, God, I know I got to lift my feet up. I got to make some little contribution because if you have to make some little contribution, you're going to bite your nails from here to your death, hoping you've made enough of a contribution. You can't do it. You can't do it. So you can have this defective faith or defective enthusiasm that really makes you the center of your own faith. I'm just using Jesus to get to myself. And we have to really examine ourselves about that. Or secondly, you could be saved, but you just miss the joy of having faith in Jesus. You'd be spending your whole time lifting up your feet and saying, I'm not sure if I made my little contribution. So we're going to come to this table. And so I want you to think through for yourself. And before you come, God, maybe you just need to repent. God, I... I have a defective enthusiasm for you. And you need to help me. You need to change my heart. I'm in the Lowe's grocery store up here at Monkey Junction yesterday, maybe 5 o'clock. And I'm over here on one side of the of a, the produce section, and this guy comes by. I don't see him. He's like, hey, Paul, what you getting over there? So this is a friend. I hadn't seen him in a, in a while, probably a couple of years and uh, oh, I'm just getting this. Hey, how you doing, Brad? Yeah, Brad. Hey, you remember that time at the YMCA? So I used to see him at the Y. What what time? You know that time you talked to me and then you 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 said let's go out and get something to eat afterwards. Yeah, I remember that. I tell people about that all the time. I'm like, why why do you tell them? That's when I became a Christian. I thought I was a Christian the whole time. But when I talked to you about what it meant to love Jesus, I didn't realize I didn't know Jesus. I tell people that story all the time. Paul, I'm so thankful for you. I mean, just God just used me right at that little moment. He could be using you if you understood it. 
Lord, we come to this table. (laughs) Nobody comes perfect. We all have defects. But we're, we're asking you to help us see, just like these, these people have a defective view and you've put this in the Bible so we can see it. And ask ourselves, ask ourselves, Lord, can you examine our hearts? Because maybe we can't even see it ourselves. Would you take away the anxiety that a real believer has here, that they're afraid that their faith is the measure that you're using and Jesus isn't the object. So would you help would you just help them turn that completely around this morning? So they would come with great freedom that you love and care for them that you're going to carry these hearts home. We know it was the night that you were betrayed. You took the Passover bread and you broke it and you said this is my body and I'm going to give it for you you took bread and said take and eat you took the the wine and said this is the blood of the new covenant it is going to be given for you take these common elements we pray and use them for divine purposes in Jesus name amen if you come and you you've not perfectly, but you've committed your life to Christ. You've sat down in the chair. You've trusted him. I'd ask you to come. Come and be fed. If, if that's not you, if that doesn't describe you, you just sit quietly while other people come and ask yourself, what, what is it that you're asking the world for in satisfaction? It's not going to supply. You come as the usher's help.
what is in the Bible so helpful? Because you get you get turned around, and when you get turned around, then you, you become anxious or fearful or frustrated or a hundred other bad things. So glad for Jesus coming in like a, a sunbeam and saying, "I am the bread." Be satisfied with me. Trust in me. Let's stand together and sing our closing song.